Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again. I'm the director at Center for Lit, and I'm joined by the rest of the crew as usual. They make my heart light to think about literary thoughts and discussing literary thoughts with all of them. <laughs> a, quick, a quick introduction. My wife, Missy. Hi. My daughter, Megan. Hello. My son, Ian. Well, hey. And his lovely wife, Emily. Hi there. Welcome, everyone. Glad you guys are on board for another discussion of literature we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction this time for this episode of Bibliophiles. We've been talking recently about various genres of literature with the assumption that book lovers are tuning in to listen, literature lovers of all stripes. And we've given a sop, as it were, to the lovers of fantasy. We've talked about the ancient classics. We've talked about some more recent titles, all in the fiction genre. I thought we'd branch out a little bit today and talk about poetry. Good idea? I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> My lovely wife has got a broad smile on her face at the very mention of this particular genre because it's close to her heart and a favorite. Isn't that right? I do love me a poem every now and then. <laughs> but obviously it qualifies as literature just like anything else, right, Missy? Absolutely. Maybe even more so. Yeah, I, that's like why I love it. What? Explain that. Well, whereas with fiction or an essay or something like that, you you have, as the author, you have pages and pages of time to develop your thoughts, mm -hmm. and write, to communicate your ideas. A poet, I, I, I would lay aside the epic poets, of course, because they've they got can go just on as many pages, too, right? but short poems, right? They have this very short space of time mm -hmm. to communicate the same depth and complexity of ideas that a novelist would communicate. Right. So every word counts. The masters of condensing. They are. They are. Very, very pithy, these poems. Are, are poets doing the same thing, though, in some other ways as novelists and, and indeed other artists in terms of talking about the same kinds of ideas? Yeah, absolutely, they are. Yeah, they're all, they're weighing into the same great conversation that the novelists are and the essayists are. They're talking about the same great ideas. They're just doing it in a different art form. Ah, okay. And it is art because in the same way that art that you'd hang on your wall, you know, presents a picture of an idea to you. Um, a poet presents a picture as well, but his picture is created with words. He uses images, similes, and metaphors mm -hmm. so that he connects these abstract ideas with concrete things so as to make the ideas more tangible to his readers. He presents these ideas with a fresh, kind of a freshness that causes the reader to look at them in perhaps a way they never thought of them before. Hmm. Let me jump in right here and ask if, um, if as readers, the four of you, if your experience with poetry it has been any different or distinct in some way from your experience with fiction or with, with novels, with plays, with movies, how would you describe the, I mean, you guys have studied it, yeah. I assume, right? How would you describe your experience as being different? 
um, we had a podcast a while ago about um, Shakespeare, and we mentioned that Shakespeare is a little bit hard to get into. At first, you kind of get into the rhythm of his language, and then you find that he can be understood, but it's not as intuitive as mm. reading something that's contemporary. And I find that that was my experience with poetry at first, mm. that it takes more than one reading to start to get into the mind of the author and understand just his basic meaning, um, never mind the deep themes that he might be tackling. Maybe because his language his isn't quite as conversational? His language isn't as conversational because it's so deep, because every word choice, because of that condensing that mom was talking about a minute ago, every word means multiple things. He's chosen the one that can be understood a couple of different ways, packed a lot of meaning into each word. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. of course, you can't unpack it in just one reading. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I realized about poetry, that you need to be patient mm. because it's it's um, worth reading a couple of times. It's very rewarding that way. Mm. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on that idea, the distinction between the the experience of, of reading poetry and of fiction? Maybe Ian and Emily, you guys have a thought on that? Well, I think Megan's right. I think it forces you to slow down a lot in your reading because when you're reading a novel it's really easy to just flip through it and mm -hmm. and get the plot mm -hmm. but with a poem you're forced to kind of pay attention to each little detail in every line and read a line maybe a couple times before it really sinks in and it really it, it by its very nature it forces slow reading mm -hmm. and not just because you need to pay attention to the words but also to their placement oftentimes the the very lining that the author does the yeah. the arrangement of words on the page are very intentionally designed to communicate the ideas as well mm. i mean that's obviously true when we're talking about a concrete poem because the words themselves on the page present a picture mm -hmm. a visual image on the page but even when we're not talking about concrete poem, poems when we're talking about any kind of poem oftentimes the the word w with which the line ends is very significant mm. or where the words particularly appear in the stanza, sometimes, like if you read a uh, a Herbert poem, for example, George even, Herbert, yeah, the English poet from yes, the seventeenth century. Yes, even within his poems, he sometimes creates concrete images, right. not the poem itself, but like a a concrete within the poem itself. I was thinking about sense. in a in a um, in a movie or some sort of much more popular art form. Sometimes there's a poetic moment where a little tableau or a little scene has symbolic significance. And right. there's so much meaning packed into that one little scene or that one little object that's a symbol of something. Mm -hmm. You guys are suggesting that a poem is like that from beginning to end. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay. That's good. So, And, and at the same time, they're so musical, like Megan said. Mm -hmm. um, the language itself, the meter, the metrical arrangement, like she mentioned, can sometimes make it difficult to hear what the author's saying on the first read. He takes a lot of license sometimes with his arrangement, mm -hmm. um, syllabic arrangements on the page. But um, if you fight through, it's it's lyrical. Yeah. I had a professor in college who taught me to read the poem a couple of times, but to look for different things each time you read through. Mm -hmm. So on the first reading, don't think about understanding what the poet is saying at all. Don't think about the meaning. Just let the rhythm itself, the music of the language, wash over you. And then in the second reading, start thinking about the meaning itself. And she actually had us read it three times, um, arguing that the meaning took a couple times just of itself. But I mm -hmm. loved that she had us read it just once for the music itself of the language. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to recognize that about poetry. It's mm -hmm. one of the beauties that can be enjoyed. Just the beauty of the, the music of the language. Yeah, it's a little bit like a song. Mm -hmm. 
favorite poets poets that you recommend to mm. listeners? Who do you guys, when you say, well, you know, I mean, it sounds like, I got to confess, I did not read a lot of poetry when it was my turn. And I wouldn't call myself a super poetic person in terms of personality. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know why you're all laughing. Um, I do a fair bit of writing in my life and v- virtually none of it is poetical. Oh, you've written me a couple of poems. Well, I've written a love poem or two, but we're not going to talk writing? about that in public, are we? Are you sure? Yes, we are. Oh, my. <laughs> I don't now. I'm, I've they completely forgotten where I was going favorite with that. Favorite poems. You were yes, favorite right, poems. right. If you if you say we're poetry lovers, we would recommend that as an example of this great genre, you investigate the poetry of blank. And maybe we should mm-hmm. go around the room and maybe Missy have you go last. Okay. But what about Ian and Emily? Who, who would you guys recommend we we investigate? Ooh, that's difficult. Mm-hmm. A couple names come to mind. I really like the poetry of Seamus Haney. Oh yeah, he's a current, or he recently passed away actually, but he's a more modern poet. Seamus Haney, okay. Um, does, what kind of poems does he write? What subjects does he take up? What's he known for? Um, it, it's pretty earthy poetry. Um, <laughs> I should have thought. I, uh... <laughs> I should have told you I was going to ask that question. <laughs> I, I thought of two off the top of my head that I really enjoy reading, um, and I like them because they're they're kind of intense. They pack a lot, just like Mom was saying about the condensing. They pack a lot of meaning into very few words. They're famous for short, short poetry. Um, I thought of, um, in particular, Wilfred Owen, Ooh. who actually oh, writes I was really... Bring up Wilfred Owen. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry to steal it. No, he writes really dark war poetry for the most part, but it is vivid. It has a way of oh, yeah. presenting you with a picture that you'll never forget mm-hmm. and um, a, thought-provoking, a thought-provoking image that makes you think of... Um, Mortality for the most part. That's mostly what he was writing about, but mm-hmm. what it is to be a man mm. and whether or not that's worth it, mm. given the pain of humanity. Definitely universally yeah. applicable. Oh, man, yeah. It's very universal, but yeah, I just I think, think of him I as... think in that same... Oh, go ahead, Ian. I'm sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, in that same vein, Siegfried Sassoon um, is another poet from the First World War. Oh, yeah. That I think is, I would describe exactly the same way you've described Wilfred Owen. Mm. I love that kind of poetry. It's beautiful. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's really moving. I do have an, a, a thought. I, do, I have <laughs> read a couple of poems in my day. And I, <laughs> mostly because I was looking for fodder for love poems to your mother. And um, <laughs> I was trying to imitate. And I, and I found the poetry of John Donne when I was oh, younger. Yeah. The, um, the 17th century <laughs> metaphysical poet. Who's, um, couple, he has a couple of famous sonnets that are filled with the kind, I think, and you guys can coach me on this as we go along, the kind of imagery and symbolism that you're talking about. Mm. Um, a valediction forbidding mourning where he talks about the, um, uh, his heart and his lover's heart being connected like two feet of a compass. Oh yeah. And you know, that sort of thing. The, those, I think the poetry of John Donne is really worth uh, taking a look at if you're a novice like me. Yeah, he's great. He, he uses the conceit a lot, which is a metaphor that you draw out through the whole poem. So mm. one image that just gets deeper the more you think about it. And he spends time drawing mm. out the image to mm. mean more and more of the thematic content that he's talking about. Yeah, I, I love that. It's a, it's a take up on the extended metaphor mm-hmm. that goes in a dramatic direction because the comparison is so outrageous. Right. Two things are so not like one another. Right. Like two comparing. lovers being like the, the two feet of a compass, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, right. Another another guy that jumps to mind that's actually modern, um, whom I had the 
the great privilege and honor of introducing at a event at our college one time is a guy named David Middleton, hmm. who um, well, probably to contrast the way we've been talking about metaphor, he actually, I think, does a better job than anyone I've read of telling a story as bluntly as possible. Hmm. The words that he chooses to they're so unbelievably clear that they cannot be misunderstood. And that's, mm. that's his kind of poetry. And um, he just, he's, I mean, he's from an, a, from an interesting place in the world and comes in and thinks about things in a certain way and hearing him put forth his worldview is fascinating. Also. What's his name again, Ian? David Middleton. Okay. That brings up a question that I thought of, of asking um, sometimes in my, well, actually a couple of times in my writing teacher career, I've asked students to, write a poem. And it's strange that um, even at the high school level, the idea of poetry is that it is a, uh, an expression of the poet's emotions. And as such, formlessness and kind of an amorphous amoebic quality right. is sort of the hallmark of amateur poetry. Mm-hmm. And we read you know, poems from, from days gone by, from the Renaissance and the early modern period in England in particular, and we find a lot of structure. We find a lot of sonnet forms. Yes. And even right up into mm. the present day, there's, there's form, formal structure that sort of characterizes poetry. Even in the free verse poetry that we read, the good stuff has form. I wonder if this idea that you guys have been talking about, that symbolism and, and metaphor and packing a lot of meaning into a small amount of words goes along with the idea of there being rules to poetry. Is that an important part of the genre is the way you guys understand it? The fact that it conforms to forms and rules? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it, it reminds me. Oh, sorry. oh, go ahead, Emily. <laughs> it reminds me of um, art or painting in that I think it, it's free verse is done best or breaking the rules is done best when someone already knows the rules mm-hmm. in the first place. That's exactly right. So, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend just going willy nilly at it. Uh, I think that the best poets who are writing poetry today are breaking rules only because they know the rules in the first place and are doing so intentionally. Mm. Well, and also they break the rules when I basically, they choose a free verse poem because the, the subject matter and the shape that the poem is taking naturally is so strong that it doesn't fit any of those other forms. But it has a shape. But it, it has a shape. It just doesn't conform to a sonnet or a villanelle or... Exactly. Right. Um, I, I think of one by, I think it's um, Margaret Percy or something like that. Pierce. Pierce. It's called A Work of Artifice. And um, she's talking about social convention and the way that it um, stunts the development of individuals. Oh. And so... Every single one of her lines is clipped. So as to illustrate the point. Yes. Yes. So the form of the poem underscores the idea of the poem. Exactly. Exactly. It it took its own shape. It didn't need to be a sonnet. It wouldn't have been appropriate for it to to take the form of a sonnet. Mm -hmm. It needed those short clipped phrases. Wow. I think it's Margaret... Pierce. So there's a there's a an element of of reading and understanding poetry that's completely distinct from reading and understanding fiction. Absolutely, yes. That because of the this idea that of various forms are related to main ideas, related yes. to various themes. Everything counts in a poem, from the form to the words to their spacing and their arrangement. All of it connects in order to present the reader with like a verbal object. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite a challenge writing poetry. If if you've ever tried, you know that when you are trying to fit what you are thinking about into this form, it challenges you to be 
more creative, I would argue, than if you were just free verse writing down all of your thoughts as you think them. Mm -hmm. Stream of consciousness forces you. If you only have, you know, 14 syllables, you've got to fit everything that you're thinking of, all of the emotion that you have and you'd like to communicate to your audience just into those 14 syllables. And it's such a thrill when you find that you can do it and be understood. Wow. Yeah, I love it. The um the sonnet form is the only po- poetic form that I have any real familiarity with, and I I think I know what you're talking about because I learned that the sonnet form is designed to present a a problem or a question in the first ten of its fourteen lines, and then present some sort of answer or solution in the last four. <laughs> and so, if you haven't got an idea that corresponds to problem and solution then the sonnet form might not be the right one. Hmm. Or maybe another way to say that is if you're talking about an idea that is problem and solution oriented, working it into that sonnet form may give it the kind of beauty Mm -hmm. that we love about poetry. Mm -hmm. Right. That's interesting. (laughs) Also, when you choose to like, even within one of those, those forms, like a sonnet, when a poet chooses to break one of the rules of sonnet while he's creating a sonnet, um, you notice it. Right. And you say, right. okay, why did he break that rule there? What's he doing? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes he's drawing your attention to a particular word mm-hmm. or a thought yeah. that comes there. Yeah. He's, he's underscoring something mm-hmm. by breaking the rule. Mm-hmm. Right. It becomes significant. Wow, that's interesting. Um, Missy, you haven't mentioned a, po- a poet that you would recommend. And I left you to last because... I think you have a treat for us along those lines. You'd like to recommend a poet and read one of his poems. Am I right? I would. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to recommend a lot of poets. Yes, I know, my love, but we can't do that in this (laughs) format, right? It's true. It's true. But I will say, you know, um, John Donne that you mentioned is a great place to begin. It's very rewarding. It's very dramatic. The payoff is rich. Right. So that's a good place to start. Fairly easy to understand. Fairly easy. Comparatively speaking, I think. I think so too. Fairly easy to understand. Fairly That's why I like it. Um, (laughs) If you're looking for a present day poet, the works of Christian Wyman are very rich. Mm. Yes. Um, But the one I'd like to share with you today is a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. And he was writing in the late 19th century, early 20th century is when his poetry was published. And um, he he broke a lot of rules, actually. He wouldn't have said so himself. But if you're looking at the tradition of poetry, he was very innovative, especially when it comes to rhythm and meter. Um, whereas previous poets had adopted really regular rhythm, like the iambic pentameter that Shakespeare used, blank verse and mm-hmm. things like that, um, that were very identifiable. He played with language in such a way as to create a brand new rhythm that he said was the rhythm of ordinary speech. Um, so in his, in his poetry, you'll find, for example, four stressed syllables in a line, but they won't come in a regular pattern because in common speech, it doesn't come in a regular pattern. But if you look, when you read his poetry, same number of stresses in every single line. He calls that sprung rhythm. So it follows the, the form, a certain form of poetry, but, but molds it yes. in kind of the way that Emily was describing before. He understands the rules and then breaks them on purpose. It's very organic, his poetry. Was Interesting. Concerned, metrically speaking. And in addition, he was guided by this idea that he was a Christian, a Jesuit priest, And so he saw the world as the creation of God. Right. And as such, 
everything in the world bore the fingerprints of God, of the creator. And he said that each thing that God made had its own, I want to say like a personality, Mm. its own identity. And if we could grab a hold of that identity and really know it, we could better know God. And so he called this idea inscape. He made that up utterly, but he called it inscape. So he was always looking for the inscape of everything. So when you start to float around in his work and study what he's done, you enter into his world, right. which was a very spiritually oriented world, very pious, full of devotion. And he was also a really human man. So his work contemplates all of the things, all of the stuff of humanity, whether he's looking at natural images uh-huh. or he's looking at himself mm-hmm. and being perplexed over things like his own sin. Uh-huh. Um, you get a very human voice coming through. Wow. And I think that's especially true in this particular poem I'd like to read for you today. It's called Spring and Fall to a Young Child. And you'll notice I paused in between those two because for years I've been saying spring and fall to a young child. And my husband, what did you think I meant? I'll tell you exactly what I thought you meant. Not being a Hopkins scholar, when it was my turn to come along, I heard spring and fall to a young child and assumed that this poem was about a child's perspective, a young child's perspective on spring and fall. In fact. In fact. Until you read it and then you realized that this was not in a child's voice at all. It was written to a young child. As the listener, he realizes now. I'm not going to tell you that I realized that this morning, but it's been recently. <laughs> well, we think but that it's been recently. <laughs> he wrote this poem in the late, well, we'd say around 1880, but it wasn't published, wasn't put into print until about 1918. So let me read it for you, and then we can talk about it a little bit. So here you go. Spring and fall to a young child. Margaret... Are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? Leaves like the things of man you with your fresh thoughts care for, can you? Ah, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by, nor spare a sigh, though worlds of one would leave me a lie. And yet you will weep and know why. Now, no matter, child, the name, sorrow's springs are the same, nor mouth had, No, nor mind expressed what heart heard of, ghost guessed. It is the blight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. Okay, now here's the thing. On the one hand, (laughs) that is gorgeous. And And I can sense there's something really important being said. But on the other hand, I'm not sure I have the faintest idea what it is. Well, there are some basic questions you can ask yourself when you begin to read any poem to help you kind of locate yourself and the poet, the speaker in the poem, in the scene, so that you can get a hold of the literal meaning of the poem. And you have to do that before you can even begin to approach the figurative meaning of the poem or the implicit meaning. Right. Okay. So you want to ask questions like, um, who's speaking? Is the poet speaking in his own voice? Is he wearing some sort of a persona, a mask? Has he adopted a character? Yeah. And you'll find sometimes the answer is yes. Like, for example, in a Robert Browning poem, when he's delivering a dramatic monologue, he's actually assuming a character. But in this poem, there's no reason to believe that we don't have Hopkins speaking in his own voice. To a young child named to Margaret. To a young child. So who's he speaking to? He's speaking to a young <laughs> child. Is this significant? 
Is it significant? What do you guys think about that? Well, yeah, of course it is. Absolutely. It's about coming of age in large part. What do you mean, Megan? Well, I feel like that's about death. Well, yeah. And coming of age, when you're, when you're growing up from a child, you realize there's a moment in your life when you realize you're not going to live forever. And that's not what human beings do. And you realize death and that becomes a reality to you. And that's a sad moment. And I think that's the moment that Hopkins is pinpointing here in this poem. He's watching that realization sink into little Margaret. Ian? I guess what I would say is that's, I agree with you that that's the topic of the poem, but I think that it's more important that we talk about the actual moment than the moment that he is trying to lead her towards. Because the actual moment is her being sad about all the leaves hitting the ground mm-hmm. and yeah. the one would leave me a lie, right? right? She's, she's witnessing death in the natural world and she's sad that fall is going away. And what, and so what we're watching over the course of the poem is his, is him explaining to her that, listen, it, it's okay that the leaves are dying. And as you grow older, that's not going to, going to mess you up as much. Your heart's going to grow colder to the to this variety of death in the world, but it's also going to become a bigger and bigger deal because eventually you'll realize that what you're mourning for is the death of all things, that not the, just the leaves falling down. That the unleaving of the trees and the worlds of Wanwood leaf mill lying on the ground right. um, are really symbolic of the plight yeah. of man. No, and so and so the, as a child, like to be a child is to see the leaves falling down. And to grieve over it, to be an adult is to weep and know, not yes. just to weep, not just to grieve, but to weep and know exactly why you're weeping. So the line, and yet you will weep and know why, the idea right. is you will, though you, though your heart may grow accustomed to autumn, you will weep for the death of all things and you'll know exactly why it's sad. Mm-hmm. Right. And I love that he identifies with his target audience here. He's talking to a child, but he keeps saying over and over again, sorrow springs are the same, mm-hmm. right? You and I are grieving over the same things. Uh, and, and so there's this, this huge identifying factor between him and his listener that I think wraps us all up into the same boat. Um, Megan's got this sardonic little smile on her face. I think she wants to go back at it one more time. Megan, the floor <laughs> no, is no. yours. <laughs> I don't want to go back at it. I just, um, I don't know. I think that is absolute. I see exactly what you're saying, Ian. I just, I want to give Margaret a little more credit than that. I think that she is grieving because of the leaves falling, but I think she has a hint in her soul that Mm. that's deeper than just this leaf fell down from this tree and it's prettier up there. Why can't it go back? Mm. You know, it's deeper than that. Even for young Margaret. She doesn't understand why, but maybe she couldn't couldn't put words to it, but yeah, is affected by it in some way. Exactly. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, is it appropriate for me to mention at this point to to give myself some context that in the second line when it says Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? For years, I thought that meant Golden Grove staying, <laughs> like not leaving. <laughs> and I just want to say I feel like everyone looking at the poem because of the way he stresses the letters is tempted to say Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say Margaret? You kind of did. Did I? I it's Margaret. Did. Yes. Margaret. Yeah, you did actually. It's Margaret. 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 Ah, oh, Margaret. Ah. No, Margaret, Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? It's beautiful is what it is. I mean, and notice his stresses. You can see his sprung rhythm. Mm-hmm. You don't want to? 
<laughs> Did you say no? No, I do. <laughs> I was like, it's just no. not Margaret. I don't no. believe that Hopkins said Margaret himself <laughs> when he was reading this book. It's just not true. Okay, fine. You read next time, uh, Spear. <laughs> hey, Look, I have a comment. I have oh, a comment. Go ahead. Oh, no, comment away. I, I don't want to interrupt. You were in the middle of a thought. No, no. Go ahead, Ian. Well, I think that um, it's tempting to read the poem as – a description of adulthood, a description of coming of age, and like Megan is saying, Hopkins helping this little girl understand the sorrow that she's in. But here's the thing. There's a little note of hope in the second to last line that my attention was drawn to. It is the blight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for, right? But if man was born to this, if this blight is something that we are actually intended for and that, we're, that we are, we've been in since we know Hopkins to be such a religious man, that God has given us intentionally – then it strikes me that he's agreeing with, and we've said this on our podcast many times before, he's agreeing with a tradition that sees death not as a permanent end, but as a passing into another kind of life. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's possible to read it hopefully as well, but uh, maybe beside the point. Maybe because of the idea consistent with the image of the poem of the changing seasons, seasons are inherently cyclical, and there is a, a spring that follows fall, hmm. right? Because spring is mentioned in the title. Right. But not in the poem itself, except it's alluded to in that next to last line. It is the blight, which is kind of a nature image, right? The blight man was born for. I like that idea that you're suggesting that fall and death is the lot of man, but spring comes after. Right. Would that be yep. consistent with what we know of Hopkins to suggest that idea? I think so. And I think there's more than one thing going on in those illusions that you're making here and that he's making here. The spring and the fall can also reference the age of the speaker and of the listener, Margaret, mm. right? Yeah. Margaret. <laughs> listener, Margaret. <laughs> you can go listen to Margaret. <laughs> what do you mean though, Missy? Well, you know, the seasons are often used to represent the stages of a, of a man's life. And Margaret is in the spring of her life mm -hmm. and you know, he is in the fall of his. Presumably the poet Presumably is older. Presumably the poet right. is much older than she is. Right. So, you know, it's, it's possible that he's referencing that as well. But whatever the case, whatever he meant there, um, you know, we're reading as closely and, and keeping as carefully to what he says to be consistent throughout the poem. So really a line-by-line -line reading and explanation is the best that we can do to come to terms with the poet. And I mean that very literally, coming to terms. because Understanding his terms. Yeah, we got to understand his language. Hmm. Notice, um, you know, that it's, we've got a beautiful rhyme scheme, A, A, B, B, C, C, but then we've got three rhymes in a row, and the poem kind of turns in those three. What, which point ones are you talking <laughs> about? You so, mean three couplets in a row? Yes. We've got grieving, unleaving, you, you, older, colder, sigh, lie, why? And it's like a pivot, right? Let me just read that section that she's talking about. It will come to such sights colder by and by, nor spare a sigh, though worlds of one would leaf meal lie. And yet you will weep and, and know, know why. why. So if a triplet there in, the, in that section of rhymes, right? Yes. So and then, what turns Then we there? go back to the couplets again at the end of the poem. Um, we, you see him developing his, basically presenting the reader with a scenario, We've got Margaret with this man standing in the middle of a grove of trees that are losing their leaves. Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove on leaving? 
leaves like the things of man you with your fresh thoughts care for, can you? So children come to scenes wide open with eyes full of wonder. Everything's new. They feel everything very deeply. They experience the world with wonder. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening with Margaret here. She looks around her at these trees that are losing their leaves and she's horrified, right? Ah, he says, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by. So like Ian said, eventually you won't be so horrified by the fall. Yes. Now, Notice I say by the fall, and I think that's what he's talking about here. And he's not just talking about fall this season. He's talking about the fall. Of man? The fall of man. Ah. This is the blight that he comes to here at the end. Ah, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by, nor spare a sigh, though worlds of wan wood, leaf meal lie. There's another one of those words like unleaving that is a little strange. Wan wood, leaf meal? Yeah, wan wood and leaf meal and unleaving. Hopkins loves to coin new words. Mm -hmm. Basically take ideas and shove them together. Take two words and create a new kind of compound word that carries an idea. So wan wood, we know what wan is, pale, sick, ashy, right? And we know what a wood is. Now he's created a scene for us with a new word. This is a wan wood. Of, a dying a pale, wood. ghostly. A pallid wood. Pallid wood, yeah. This is the worlds of wanwood leaf meal. You get this, this concept of the leaves that are decaying on the ground. Getting mealy. Getting mealy. The worlds of wanwood leaf meal lie, and yet you will weep and know why. You will weep and know why. Even though you grow older and you don't have the same kind of wonder in front of things like fall, you still um, encounter what's happening in the fall and that more deeply because you understand it. That's interesting that you put it that way, because I was just going to suggest that the autumn in this poem, the season of the year is a symbol. Obviously Mm -hmm. it's being, we're being invited to understand it non-literally as a symbol of death, a symbol of passing, a symbol of aging, but it's literal for Margaret. I know, but it, but actually the poet is saying to Margaret, you will understand it symbolically Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Even as the yes, reader's yes. being invited to understand it symbolically, he's saying to the object of the poem, you're going to grow up and you're not just going to look at the season itself literally. You're going to understand that it is a picture of what's going on in the world of souls. And this is going to happen not just as you grow up chronologically, but as your heart grows older, as you become more emotionally intelligent, right? More emotionally mature, yeah. So he's talking not just about physiological development, he's talking about psychological yeah, development. Yeah, right. As, you, as your soul grows older. Mm-hmm. Now, no matter child, the name. Sorrow's springs are the same. There's another really beautiful image. Sorrow's springs, like a well, right? Mm-hmm. And he says, the source of these sorrows are all the same. Which is what? Nor mouth had, no nor mind expressed what heart heard of, ghost guessed. It is the blight man was born for. The blight, that is the fall. And I love the way he chose this word blight so intentionally to carry through that. Yeah, I mentioned that a minute ago, yeah. Blight's a thing of trees. Yes. Trees get the blight. It is the blight man was born for. Yeah. That is death. Right. It is Margaret you mourn for. Absolutely. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. Um, I have a question for the gathered poetic dignitaries. Um, What are the eternal connections between a poem like this and 
the kind of things we talk about on bibliophiles all the time, the great classics, the epics, the novels, the movies, the, I mean, what's put in, in your own words, how a reading of this poem and interacting with this poem is a similar activity. Do you mean what universal themes are being treated in this poem? And that's the kind of thing we discuss on bibliophiles yeah, all the time, right? Right. We've been talking for the most part recently about suffering and mm-hmm. what good is suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this poem addresses that at least tangentially. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it locates suffering in the human experience, not just in the adult experience. Mm-hmm. And when we, when we have talked about suffering in the past, uh, on bibliophiles, we've talked about adult suffering. I'm not sure that's true. We had a, a whole episode about, um, children's literature and how it's important to you, discuss right. suffering there too. You're right. You're exactly right. I, I was discounting that and forgetting that one, but I wanted to mention that this particular poem, um, takes very seriously Marguerite's tears. I think you mean Marguerite, Marguerite now? Marguerite. 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 It does. I mean, it does. And actually, yeah. I would say even more. You guys tell me what you think of this, but the last line um, it is the blight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. He's giving her more credit than even she knows. Yes. He's saying, Your soul, your young child's it's soul, very intuitive. knows something yes. that your child's mind doesn't even know yet mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you are a member of the human family and we are all born to suffering. And we are in it together. Uh, but it's better than that, though. It's even better than that because what he says is ghost guests. Yes. And right? what does that and mean? Your go- the ghost is the spirit. The spirit of Margaret. And, and understood in a Christian way, the ghost is the Holy Spirit, right? Mm. So he's not only, he's making Margaret human in so many different ways that I think are all really important, but the, the thing doing the guessing, that intuition that's there is the presence of an immortal soul that was made in the image of God. And Hopkins knows that, and he's pointing that out to her. Mm. Um, mm. And he's yeah, so and what, kind I mean, what better too. reason to mourn, right? What, say that again, Ian? What better reason to mourn than you know, the, the passing of, of, uh, of an eternal soul out of the world? I mean, that's the, that's the thing. That's why I love the, the use of the word ghost, right? We can always, in poetry, look even deeper at every single individual word choice, just like you were doing a second ago, Mom, with Sorrow's Springs, right? Yeah. A spring is a spring of water, like a well. It's also the beginning, like springtime and fall, right? There's, there's a bunch of different meanings to that one word that each give a different cast to the line. Well, if we look at the word ghost right there, it's the it's a whisper, it's an idea, it's ephemeral, but also it's a it's a an immortal spirit, and I think that's a different cast to the end of the poem as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but look at his kindness. Now, no matter child, the name. Don't worry about this right. now. Mm-hmm. It's okay that you don't understand this now. I validate your suffering. Mm-hmm. You're suffering over the falling leaves. I don't make fun of you. Yeah, I'm not gonna blow off your experience in this golden mm-hmm. grove that's unleaving as meaningless and childish Mm -hmm. misunderstanding. Sorrow is sorrow. Sorrow is sorrow. And you're not misunderstanding anything. Yeah. This is the blight man was born for. And it's worth crying over. It's worth crying over the fall of man, the sin nature that we inherit. This is a grievous thing. It means death and your life will be afflicted with it. Mm -hmm. This is truth. Mm -hmm. And you can hear him. There's, there's so much comfort in his voice to this child, the comfort of, um, a shared experience. He doesn't marginalize her. This is childhood. This is adulthood. You'll understand when you're old like me. No, sorrow's springs are the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So much compassion, compassion. so much empathy, really, yeah. in the poem. Anyway, I love the way he treats the idea, and you can see him 
wading into the great conversation about those big ideas of death and the finitude of man, right? And hope beyond the grave. beyond the grave, all of those kinds of things. So he's creating, as we talk about a lot, a community among his readers of fellow human beings afflicted with the same finitude, Mm -hmm. wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do all the poets you've read do this to one degree or another, you guys? I mean... If they're good ones. Yeah? Yeah, if if, if it's a good poet, he draws the universal human experience out of your heart and helps you identify with him. And that's why you keep coming back for more. Mm. I also, and this is, this could be a completely ridiculous comment because there are so many great poets who have died really young, but in my experience, um, good poets are young and great poets are old because um, good poetry is descriptive and great poetry is empathetic and I think it takes some miles on your tires and some years of thinking and writing about these things to get to the point where you're not only describing something that is but you're also doing it in a sensitive and empathetic way that connects with your reader Mm -hmm. I've read a lot of poetry that I thought wow that's a really beautiful image but there's no teeth to it there's no um, hammer driving the nail I mean there's there wasn't any impact it was just pretty because of Um, a lack of empathy with the reader is that what you mean yeah, I think because of a lack of empathy. I think um, if Margaret were writing this poem, it wouldn't be nearly as beautiful. Right. But because Hopkins is the one writing it instead, it communicates with everyone that reads it. Because he has had time enough and experience enough to understand the gravity of the moment. Yeah. Ian, would you say that's because there are two characters in the poem? So there's the possibility for empathy, there's empathy, there's the speaker and the listener. Or would you say that it's an attitude on the part of the poet in his tone towards his subject matter that's empathetic? I think it's an attitude. I mean, um, and I I applaud Hopkins for choosing this two characters talking to each other model because it's really easy to understand and instinctive for the reader. But I do think I'm pointing out an attitude on the part of the poet himself. Mm-hmm. So we should look for that maybe. Is that, is that a way to tell good poetry from bad, would you say? I think, in, I don't know. Or maybe, as I, I guess you did you say I just a minute ago, it's a way to tell good poetry from great. Right. I think, yeah, exactly. I, the poetry that I want to read that I come back to over and over again is the poetry that has that much empathy in it, not just beautiful descriptions. If not empathy with a person, um, uh, that kind of experience brought to bear on the description even of, a, of an object or a scene. Mm-hmm. Some sort right. of a gravity of right. mind, a gravitas yeah. is present. Yeah. I'm not sure you can get that any other way than, than living a while and thinking a while. And it takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. I'm overcome by this, by this idea that, uh, that the human condition, which is what all literary art is about at some level, is defined most basically by finitude, limitation, suffering, sorrow, the things that come with not being perfect, not being God, not being um, free of all difficulty. And maybe that's the source of the empathy that you're talking about. Somebody who knows that and is dealing with that in a way that acknowledges his own finitude. I'm just thinking about the difference between a poem of the kind you're describing and a, uh, a sermon or a treatise or a proclamation of some sort of truth where the writer, the speaker, is handing down the revelation of God from on high. That's a totally different thing 
than an artist saying, man, we're all, we have weak hands yeah. in this world and feet right. of clay. That's one of the things I love yeah. about poetry is that the poet himself, the author himself is down there in the mud with you mm-hmm. and he's identifying. He's basically saying, this is what's hard about being a human being and don't you identify. Exactly. John Milton is blind mm-hmm. and he writes this sonnet on his blindness and says, doth God exact day labor light denied? Oh my goodness. My limitations are overwhelming. Mm. And the reader right. says, I have limitations too. Yeah. And even though there's only one character in that poem, there's a, there's a, a possibility for empathy that makes the poem really powerful. That calls to mind one more thing that I think is important then for a poet. A poet needs to be really um, self-aware. There needs to be um, perception and um, intuition. I don't know. Sight of himself, I think, is really important for a poet because mm-hmm. one of the two of you, either the writer or the listener needs to understand something about the human condition mm-hmm. in order to empathize with one another. One of the two of you. One of the two of you. And it needs to be the poet, I think, you know? <laughs> so I don't know. That's what yeah. I love about well, I would I would piggyback on that comment, Megan, because I think what, the comment I was making earlier about age has a lot to do with speaking to poets, not just to readers of poetry. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that I've encountered is my instinct is always to try and offer an answer because isn't that what poetry is for mm. is offering an answer. Mm. And, um, someone I respect a lot uh, recently, if they're listening, they'll know who they are. Um, pointed to a piece of my work recently and said, listen, you don't have the answer to this question. The reason you don't feel like this piece of work is finished is because you've tried to offer an answer that you don't have. Mm. Right? And the moment you stop trying to offer that answer that you don't have yet and just ask the question, this piece of work is finished. Hmm. And I had never thought about it that way before, because when you're reading Hopkins, Hopkins ends his poem and says, it's Margaret you mourn for. And there it is. It's a neat bundle. It's finished. It's, 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 a, it's a message of some kind. But I don't think he got there by trying to give everybody answers. No, I, I think he got there by asking that question and by being authentically humble and broken and busted up first. I think you're wrong, though. I don't think that he answers the question. No, I don't either. There's still no. the problem of death. He doesn't say and this is how you stop mourning right Right. so it's still a question in that way so it's even better than i thought actually that's that's even just more of my point i love it (laughs) yeah and i mean i've read a lot of hopkins poetry he's one of my all-time favorites and um he actually struggled with a lot of depression so many of his poems it's just a really articulate really powerful very dark articulation of the questions that he's struggling with Mm -hmm. and he never offers you an answer he hopes in an answer and he might offer you a hope of what he thinks may come to pass and answer his deep question, but he rarely answers his question, in fact. Basically, he holds up the the kinds of things that he's looking at and experiencing and says, thus man. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here, the blight of man. Mm-hmm. Death. Mm-hmm. That's not a solution. There's nothing pat in that answer. It's not a solution, and yet there is some... Uh, maybe comfort is too strong a word. That last line, it is Margaret you mourn for. There is hope in that. Hmm. Um, if if in nothing else, in the idea that all of us, children and grownups, understand the world similarly. We have something in common in that we can all, we all sense in our ghosts, in our souls, our condition. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's at the same time, he's not ans- offering a theological answer or a philosophical answer. He is saying this. We are all in this together. In some sense, we're all mourning for Margaret. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something in that. Maybe that's what art can offer. We talk about that a lot here on Bibliophiles. Maybe that's what art can offer to the viewer or the listener. 
a sense that they are not alone. I do think that is one of the things that poetry, um, poetry accomplishes. Uniquely? I don't know about uniquely. I think all of the art forms engage man in that very unique way. It's one of the things that makes art art. Uh, it invites you to participate in the human experience and to view something that's very human um, or that impacts you to understand your humanity in a brand new way. Mm-hmm. All art does that. Yeah. But poetry in this way really does invite community. It, it invites recognition, that, that moment where you say, oh, yes, I've seen that. I know mm-hmm. that from from the simplest poems. I was just going to say, does Winnie the Pooh count in this absolutely, connection? Absolutely, yes. and from the from the simplest uh, maybe poems, more than other people actually. <laughs> you know, just even like an Emily Dickinson short poem. I'll tell you how the sun rose a ribbon at a time. You know, you know what she's. You say, oh, I've seen that too. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that too. Right. There's that moment of human recognition, and you think, oh, I think that was so beautifully said. I or love when, that. Or when Pig, with two. Yeah, when Piglet says poo and he says what? And Piglet says nothing. I just wanted to be sure of you. Every, <laughs> oh, every reader in the world goes, yeah, I get it. Yeah. So that alone begins to create some community. Yeah. It lets you know as the reader that you are not alone in the world, mm-hmm. but you are one of many and others have seen what you see and more. Mm-hmm. And that's hopeful. Well, in that way, a poem is doing the exact same thing as a great novel, mm-hmm. as any other work of literature, saying to all its audience, Consider this. Consider this. We are all of a piece. So go get some poems, read them, contemplate the verbal objects that are before you, because they are. They're verbal objects, and they do such a beautiful job of handing to you an abstract idea that you could write a very long treatise upon, but that Wouldn't in the middle of good. it, generally the listener would fall asleep or check out in <laughs> right. some way. A poem, a poet basically is communicating all of those deep, meaningful ideas, but he's doing it with a verbal image mm-hmm. that you could almost pick up and hold in your hand. Mm. Wonderful. Well, take this as a recommendation from all of us that poetry is one of those literary genres that's well worth investigating, and we remain fans of it here at Center for Lit. <laughs> that is all the time we have for today, however. Thank you all for joining us on Bibliophiles once again. Center for Lit crew, thanks for being with me on this episode. I invite all you listeners to come rate the podcast on iTunes if you get a minute, and also come by the website uh, on occasion, www.centerforlit.com to take advantage of the other resources that we offer readers of all feathers. Thanks for being here, everyone. Until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Happy Happy reading. reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.